Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking fit to fat to fit with Drew Manning. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 112 of the Eat Right Nutrition podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Drew Manning, who is talking to us today about his journey from fit to fat to fit and some of the things that he had to overcome in gaining weight and then losing weight so that he can relate to and empathize with his clients. And I really think that Drew has a very special message and a very special approach for us. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Drew Manning, welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast. We're excited to have you here. And uh, yeah, so I think the first place that we want to start today is we want to talk about how you got started in the fitness industry and what led you to kind of gravitate towards fitness. Yeah, so I grew up in a family of 11 brothers and sisters, right? Yeah, which is crazy. I don't know how my parents did it, but they had 11 kids. <laughs> and I was number seven of 11. And my all my older brothers played sports. And so for me, naturally, I kind of got into sports from a young age, specifically football and wrestling uh, were the two sports I did from when I was a kid all the way through college. And uh, so being physically fit kind of came naturally for me. And uh, so I knew that it was going to be a part of my life. Plus, growing up in the 80s, I mean, come on, you, you had like Conan the Barbarian, you had Predator, like you had these movies that were just like iconic. And I'm like, man, I want to look like that. Right. So that was kind of like the environment that I grew up in. So I kind of gravitated naturally to fitness because of my sports background. <clears throat> Fast forward to 2009, I decided to become certified as a personal trainer and uh, started taking on clients. And um, that's where I, could, I started to notice there was this weird disconnect between me someone who had never been overweight a day in my life. And then my clients who, you know, were, you know, struggled with their weight pretty much their whole life. Right. And I couldn't understand why it was so hard for them just to do what I did, which was so easy, which was eat healthy food, go to the gym, like be disciplined. And I was like, and they would tell me, you know, Drew, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I went out with some friends this weekend. I was trying to follow the meal plan and, um, had a couple of drinks and then, you know, ended up having some pizza and, and dessert and I fell off the wagon. Right. And I, I would get frustrated. Like, okay, I hear you, but just do it. Like, you, like, why don't you just do it? Like put down the junk food, go to the gym. Like it's not that hard. Um, and then one of my clients at the time, who was my brother-in-law, he told me, you know, Drew, you don't understand how hard it is for me or for people like me. Um, and I was like, you know what? You're right. Because for you, it seems really, really difficult. I can tell. And for me, it's so easy. Like, I don't even have to think about it, right? And uh, that's kind of the genesis of, you know, me getting started in the fitness industry, but then also me realizing there was something wrong, something missing about my approach to helping my clients, because I just couldn't understand why it was so hard for them. And so that's kind of where this idea of fit to fat to fit eventually came from. So you decided to do fit to fat to fit. Was that just like, was that a conversation with you? You said it was your brother-in-law? <laughs> Um, it wasn't a conversation with him. He started that that conversation, which caused my brain to start thinking of like, okay, how can I better relate to him? He's telling me I don't understand. He has a point, 
right? Because I don't understand why it's hard. And then I was married at the time. And I remember telling my wife, um, well, actually I was thinking of ideas of like, okay, how can I gain a better understanding? And I remember I was driving to work one day and this, this thought popped up, pop, popped into my brain. Like, what if you got fat on purpose? And it just was like a light bulb went off. Like, oh, what if I actually did this? Like, what if I gained weight on purpose, documented it? Maybe that would teach me what it was like and be this cool experiment that people could follow. And that's kind of uh, where it started. And then I, I talked to my wife. Let me, I'm like, hey, I have this crazy idea. What do you think about it? And she was pregnant at the time. And I was more of like a health nut, you know, like very strict with my diet. And she's like, so you're telling me we're going to have junk food in the house. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> she's like, yeah, I think we should do it. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of where Fit to Fat to Fit 1.0 started. Well, I oh, I have so many questions for you, but yeah. I guess the first question is when you when you were thinking this through, what in terms of gaining the weight, what was the mental health perspective? Or did you even think about what that would entail aside from obviously the physical part for us as trainers is one aspect, but just wondering what your mindset was or if you even thought it would affect your mental health. I didn't think it would affect it at all. And that was what the biggest surprise of it was. And that's mm -hmm. where the greatest lessons were learned were on the mental and emotional side. Cause I thought it was going to be a physical journey of like, you know, eating all the Twinkies and donuts and then getting fat and then losing the weight just from a pure physical perspective. I had no idea how it was going to affect me mentally and emotionally. So I kind of went into it a little bit naive thinking, Oh yeah, I got this. It's not going to be that hard. It's just going to be like any other physical challenge, but it was the most humbling hardest experience of my life up until that point that you know it truly humbled me and i think that's what people uh resonated with like they they felt it i felt like i was i was more relatable to them because they saw how humbled i was i, I admitted how wrong i was uh in a lot of my videos back then on youtube and i was like man this is way harder than i thought it was going to be and they saw how truly humbling it was and how your physical health affects your mental and emotional health i had no idea um, it really, really opened up my eyes to just how much of transformation is, is way more mental and emotional than we think, especially someone like me, who was like your typical trainer with six pack and muscles and, you know, knew all the physical stuff to do, but couldn't tap into the mental and emotional side, which is honestly, in my opinion, what people struggle with the most. It's not a lack of knowledge on like how to work out or how to eat healthy food, like People know that the knowledge is there. Like it's that, you know, we have Google. <laughs> you, you can find out anything you want. The knowledge is there. It's the ability to live it consistently day in and day out because we are emotional beings as humans and we eat our emotions and we, <laughs> you know, deal with emotional pain and we deal with it in a physical way where, you know, sometimes we'll numb the pain, uh, emotional pain of life with food or drugs or alcohol because it's we get, it gets uncomfortable right when we deal with stress or family issues or kids or finances or relationships or divorces or bankruptcies we turn to things like food and drugs and alcohol to take away that pain temporarily and we create this vicious vicious cycle and i think a lot of people get stuck in that vicious cycle and they're like all right this year i'm going to willpower my way out of this i'm going to stop drinking alcohol i'm going to stop eating sugar i'm going to work out seven days a week go beast mode and then three weeks later, they're right back into their old habits because they haven't reset uh, their brain. They haven't re re uh, learned how to rewire rewire those neural pathways to create a new mindset. And they just think, oh, I'll just willpower my way out of this. But that's like a drug addict saying, okay, I'm just going to stop doing drugs and then I'll solve all my problems. It's like, 
yeah, if it were that easy, <laughs> everyone would do it, right? So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. The mental, I think when you were speaking before about not being able to connect, I find that to be one of the biggest issues with trainers in general and their clients is, I mean, a trainer knows how to prescribe the workout and give the food guidelines and the client understands what those workouts should look like and that they have to show up and do them and the food they should be eating. It's the mental and emotional connection between the two and finding that connection that really does kind of make the difference. And I also find it really interesting, the relatability from trainer to client and client to trainer when a client feels that you're going through it with them. Yeah. And you probably saw that from the watching the TV show. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I did. Yeah. There's a good quote that I love. Um, and I can't remember who said it, but it says, uh, no one cares how much, you know, until they know how much you care. Exactly. And I think so that's, that's kind of what fit to fit to fit is in a nutshell. Um, if it, that quote kind of embodies this whole mentality of, of empathy that I've developed mm. from doing fit to fit to fit is like, you could have all the knowledge in the world as a trainer. You could have all the certifications. You could understand all the science and how to mani manipulate someone's body composition to get them in the perfect body. But if you don't know how to relate to your clients and your clients don't feel heard or understood or safe or seen, yes, there's going to be a disconnect where they're not going to be willing to listen to what you have to say. So you could have all the knowledge in the world. And this is the, the a huge issue, not just in the fitness industry, but I see it with doctors as well. And the healthcare industry of like just no empathy of like, hey, here's what you do. And you just like as if you're a robot and you just do it. There's no emotional component to it. And I think people don't know how to make that connection sometimes. And that's where the relatability is lost, where it's like, oh, this person's really smart, but they don't they're not I, I don't feel heard or, or understood by them. And so it's hard to have that connection of like, OK, I'm going to do what they're telling me to do do but when someone feels heard and understood and safe and seen they're more willing to be like okay this person gets me i'm going to push myself harder and on the tv show when we had other trainers go through the process that's what was so cool was because when i did it, i did it by myself i didn't have a client that i lost the weight with but you see these clients respect their trainers so much more because they're like oh okay now you understand and can empathize with me of like how hard this is and you see that when the trainer after gaining all the weight, what the, my favorite part of the show is seeing the trainers do that workout with them. The like, first workout. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. They put the, they put the client through it first. Of course the client's suffering and struggling and like puking and like, you know, all that stuff. And then it's like, okay, now the trainer has got to go through that same workout that they just put the client through. And you see the same thing happen to them where they're like, Oh my gosh, I'm a jerk. I can't believe I did that to you. Like I, <laughs> I, I understand, I understand a little bit of how hard it is now. And so that's the thing. I think empathy is just one of the things that the fitness industry is it lacks. This world is lacking empathy, but I think empathy is a huge component to making this world a better place where we can, you know, if so, if we can learn to develop empathy, which for me is listening to understand someone instead of listening to judge or respond or critique or correct, you know, we're so quick in, in this day and age with social media to just respond. Like someone makes a post and it's like, okay, let me go, let me jab at them with this you know, and, and without even really understanding, like, why do you think the way you think, or tell me more about yourself or getting curious, like, okay, why do you think the way you think? Like, why do you think this way and digging deep to make that person feel understood? And then the, they're going to be more willing to uh, be honest and uh, <clears throat> more thoughtful about how they respond in that situation versus just defense mechanisms, you know, at being triggered and these walls, you know, coming up and then causing more division. And that's kind of how I see it happen in today's day and age, unfortunately, but empathy 
if you could learn to develop that can be a huge skill not just in the fitness industry, but just as a human in general, you know? Absolutely. So what, tell us a little bit about what your actual, how much weight did you gain? How long did it take you to gain the weight? Like give us the lowdown on your process. So 1.0 version was back in 2011, right? I was 31 at the time. Mm -hmm. I went from 193 to 269. Uh, so about like eight and a half percent body fat to I think 32, 33% body fat in wow. the course of six months. So the, this is one thing I want to make clear, or some people don't understand. They're like, oh, that's just a typical bodybuilding bulking phase, right? Which is totally different, right? A bodybuilding bulking phase is you're eating a ton of calories, you're bulking up, but you're also lifting some heavy weights to build right. as much lean mass as possible. I literally was not doing any kind of physical activity, zero workouts during that time. So all the weight that I gained was pure fat mass, right? Um, well, and I gained... Oh, let me ahead. just jump in real quick. So yeah. you... I'm assuming you probably lost some muscle in the process too. Yes, and I, I did. And I also want to ask you, how hard was that for you mentally on the other mm -hmm. side, having trained basically your whole life, right? Being an athlete, growing up in, yeah. you know, in this kind of active lifestyle, and then going into a place where you're basically doing the opposite of what you're asking your clients to do. Yeah. That's a really good question. So this is, uh, I love talking about this because basically what happened in the next show was my whole life exercise was kind of this uh, stress reliever, right? It's kind of my release, my outlet to, you know, or release some stress, not having that going from having that my whole life to not having that was uh, a whirlwind of emotions because now that I didn't have that release, guess what became my release food, food yes. and cinnamon toast crunch, you know, <laughs> Hot Pockets, uh, Top Ramen, you know, all the frozen uh, foods and all the, the chips and cookies and crackers, like all the delicious processed food we have here in America, which we have in abundance. Like why we need 100 flavors of cereal. I don't know why, but we do. And they taste delicious. Um, but but, you know, the, that that became my outlet in it. But that outlet creates this unhealthy, vicious cycle of, you know, it, it creates this um, dependency on that food because with that food, you get a little dopamine hit. And then uh, shortly afterwards, that dopamine wears off and you're like, okay, I need something else. And you turn to more food and you're like, oh, I can get this dopamine hit multiple times per day. So there was an interesting component to um, not being able to work out, um, you know, during that, that six month uh, time frame. And it was, it, it caused me, I wouldn't say it caused me to be depressed, but I was pretty miserable on a, on a psychological level um, at the time, just because my identity at that time was based around my body. Like I was drew the fit guy in my mind. Like that was the image that I created. And, and when I, even when I was 20 pounds heavier, no one could really notice. I was freaking out where I wanted to go up to strangers in public and tell them like, Hey, I'm not really overweight. This is just an experiment. Like, here's my before <laughs> picture. This is what I normally look like. Like go to this website. It'll explain everything because I was so uncomfortable, you know, being this larger, heavier person for the first time because my body image was my self image at that time. And so for me, that first experience when I did it in 2011, uh, really was, uh, I don't know if we're allowed to cuss on here. Are we allowed to cuss? Absolutely. Uh, it was a mind fuck. It was a mind <laughs> fuck for me because it was so like, who am I? Like, I don't know who I am. And so I had this huge identity crisis uh, during that first version of, uh, when I did it. Now, fast forward to 2020, which I'm sure we'll get to, I did it again. And it was a completely different experience. Although it was, it was harder the second time. And I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later, but um, yeah, not being able to work out 
definitely took its toll on me uh, from a mental and emotional perspective. It's almost like you go, it's like a reverse kind of, you know, I wonder what clients feel like. And Nicole and I kind of talked about this offline a little bit. When clients feel uncomfortable in their own skin. Yeah. And they kind of have to justify certain things to other people. And they kind of feel insecure. And then you have people who like, don't feel comfortable even stepping into a gym. And you have to kind of overcome that barrier with them too. Like, all right, well, maybe we start with home home workouts. Like, so what do you what do you say about the the flip side, the opposite side from a client's perspective with you going through it? Yeah, it's really interesting because um, like I had created a, an image around my body uh, being my identity, people who grew up overweight do the same thing. And so right. for them, you know, when they're when they're trying to lose the weight, they're trying to get fit. Even if they do lose the weight, a lot of them go back to their old ways because their identity has been so ingrained in this larger version of themselves that even when they do lose the weight, they still don't, they still think of themselves as that overweight person. And this is kind of like what I do now is I help train people to detach from their body image as their self-image, which takes more of a, a mental and emotional approach instead of like, hey, here's your meal plans, here's your workouts. It's more so of a mindset training. Uh, to detach their body image from their self-image. And so how to do that, it's, it's, you know, there's no one way to do it. But what I do is I help them, uh, it sounds kind of weird, but I have them name their body like a separate part of them. Like their body, I come up with a name for them or they come up with a name for for their body as like whatever they want to call it. And then they refer to their body as this third person part of them. It's still a part of them, but it's not their identity. And that kind of helps them see it like, oh, my body is just this 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 part of me that can do so many cool things for me, but it, I'm not defined by it. And my identity isn't based around my body. Because here's the thing, your body's going to change. Your body's not going to be the same. Whether you lose weight, you gain weight, you know, you, you lose an arm in a car accident, like you're, you're, you're not your body. Your body could change at any moment, right? So if we create this identity around our body, then you're kind of setting yourself up for an identity crisis at some point. And I, I see a lot of pregnant women go through this too where they're like, wait a second, this isn't my body. Like what is happening to me? This is crazy. And so it creates this identity crisis for a lot of people. But the problem is that, you know, without learning how to, how to detach from that, we just kind of go with it because that's what society teaches us. So it's like, uh, we're programmed to think that way of like, oh, people are defining me by my body. So therefore I should define myself by my body. And that just takes some training on the mental and emotional side to detach from that. And so that's kind of how I help people uh, develop a healthier relationship with their body, uh, helping them realize that they are not their body. There's more to them than their body. So fast forward, you gain yeah. the weight. How much, how much weight total? <laughs> the first time 76 pounds in six 76, months. In six months. It's a lot, it's a lot of weight in a short period is... of time. Yes, it is. You Did you f- experience? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. You have to feel it, right? Like you have to feel 76 pounds in a short, that short amount of time. Yes. Exactly. No, I felt it. <laughs> I felt it for sure, man. It was it was so hard. And it, what's interesting about the physical side of it was just the little things I took for granted, like bending over to tie my shoes. I had no idea I would have to hold my breath because of all that visceral fat pushing on my lungs, you know, bending over to tie my shoes, um, you know, holding your breath, walking up the stairs, snoring. It, it's interesting how I, I've never experienced that before, but a lot of things uh, with that, you know, were very humbling and it was a very eye-opening experience. So did you do lab I work was, throughout the process? I was just going to ask, was there anything <laughs> medically that changed in your body? Yeah, I did do, I did do blood work both times. Uh, my blood pressure the first time got up to 167 over 113. My testosterone dropped to the low 200s as a 31 year old, which is very, very low. Right. 
can't remember any other numbers off the top of my head. Oh, I went on Dr. Oz and uh, he did some liver and kidney testing and um, I developed a non-alcoholic fatty liver, which was uh, scary because I didn't drink alcohol that first journey, but I drank a lot of soda. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so the damage that it does to your liver is very similar. That's why they call it non-alcoholic fatty liver disease because usually it's alcoholics are the ones who have to deal with that. But because of all the, uh, you know, sugary drinks we have nowadays people drink those in abundance and it could cause a very similar type of damage to the liver so yeah it was it got pretty scary but luckily nothing too serious to where i had to i had to pull the plug on it but i know dr oz when i was on his show he wanted me to stop it pretty quick and uh, luckily i was at the end of my journey when i went on his show so i was like yeah i'm gonna stop in about a week and then i'll go back to my healthy ways so (laughs) Well, that's my next question. How was there any difficulty going back into your healthy way of living once you stopped the process and started to lose the weight again? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, the way I had to do it, unfortunately, was cold turkey, where as soon as I gained the weight after at that six month mark, it was like, okay, it's go time. Like day one, back to my normal you know, meal plan, 2000 calories. Um, back then I wasn't doing keto it was mostly like a paleo-ish approach so protein and veggies mostly at, at, at all at, at my meals that I had like spread out over five six meals per day um and those I remember those first two weeks uh sucked back to eating healthy because <laughs> I went from like five six thousand calories of processed uh junk food to about two thousand calories of real whole food and my body was like what the hell is this like where's our drug right where's our high that we had experienced for the past six months and it's interesting because I, I, it, it was a very um, powerful learning moment for me in what my clients have to deal with when they go on a lot, when they try and change up their diet and change their lifestyle. First for, you know, I had only been living this way for six months. You know, imagine someone for six years or six decades eating this way and then all of a sudden saying, okay, we're going to do this diet now. It sucks. Like I remember yeah. my body fighting back against me, wanting the drugs or the food that it had had the past six months saying this, this, this isn't the same and it doesn't feel good. And so it was weird how my body, even though I was eating healthy food and my body almost responded in the opposite way of like, no, we don't want this. We want this other stuff that you've been giving us. And I remember I had uh, headaches. I was grumpy. I was moody. The food didn't taste nearly as good. Um, I was hungrier um, than normal. And so it was a very humbling experience, but then it clicked for me. I'm like, Oh, this is what my clients have been telling me when I give them a meal plan. I'm like, okay, be perfect at this. Like don't mess up. You're kind of going against your bi- your own biology. It's like a drug addict getting off of a drug, going through withdrawal symptoms, just saying, Hey, tough it out. It's not that difficult, but then experiencing it firsthand, you're like, Holy shit, this is a lot more harder than I thought it was going to be. And I see why people struggle with this because I have the willpower and the discipline, but let's be honest, 90% of the population isn't David Goggins and can't tap into that mentality of like, just do it. And so I see why people get stuck uh, after like a week or two of like, man, this is so hard. I don't feel good. I don't feel great. Like the food doesn't taste good. Like, And so everything's fighting back against them when they're trying to live a healthier lifestyle. So it gave me a lot of empathy and a better understanding on uh, how powerful the emotional attachment to food really is for people. So what are some of the, or what type of advice now that you've experienced that do you give to clients or how do you address those issues with clients now that you understand how hard it is, what types of tools and, you know? Yeah. So, okay. So it sounds really interesting the way I approach it now, because having done this journey twice now, 
the biggest thing to overcome these types of addictions is self-awareness. And so what I mean by that is as you become more self-aware of why you do what you do, why you put certain foods in your mouth and those, what those foods do for you, it's helping the client connect the dots of, okay, what's the reason behind wanting to eat the pizza or the donut or the, the, you know, the glass of wine or whatever it is, right? Whatever your drug of choice is, why do you want to do that? And helping them figure out, okay, when are you triggered? And what are your emotions that come up when you are triggered? Is it a, a, a fight with your kids or your spouse or finances or your work? What is it that's causing you stress that you want to escape from, right? And then what I have them do is write this down in a journal or we'll do sessions mostly focus on this mental component where they're like, oh, when I um, was feeling sad about myself, when I saw myself in a picture or, um, you know, when I got to a fight with my spouse, it triggered me to want to reach for the food because I programmed my brain for decades now to do that. As they become aware of that, they become more in control of it. There's a really good quote by Anthony DeMello, and he says, what you are aware of, you're in control of. But what you're not aware of is in control of you. And so it's a really powerful quote to help people realize that they're not even aware of why they do what they do. They're not aware of why they eat the food. They're just like, man, why can't I just stop eating the food? And until they become aware of it, of like, oh, these are my emotional triggers. When I'm triggered by stress from life, I program my brain for the past 10, 20, 30 years to reach for an outlet, a numbing mechanism like food to distract myself from figuring out why I was triggered in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a totally different approach, right? It's not like, Hey, just, just, you know, willpower your way out of it and just like say no to yourself or like get rid of the food. These things are helpful for sure. Or have an accountability coach. All that stuff is helpful, but until they really figure out why they are the way they are, in my opinion, it's not going to be lasting change. And then once they become aware of it, they're like, oh, this is why I do it. Now, the next time that they're triggered, then they are kind of aware of like, okay, this is what's about to happen. I'm triggered right now. Normally what I'm going to do is I'm going to go reach for the cake or the chocolate or the ice cream. But because I'm aware of it now, I can think it through and thoughtfully respond instead of just react, eat it and then feel better. But then be like, oh, why did I do that? And then they beat themselves up. Then they you know, guilt themselves and shame themselves into this vicious cycle of doing it over and over and over again. And then as they become more aware of it, um, they're able to more control. So how do I help people with awareness? It's little things like meditation, journaling, um, positive affirmations, a gratitude list. Therapy is also very helpful as well to help people connect those dots. So I wish there was just like a drug you could take or a pill where it's like, oh, do this. And then boom, you're free from that. But it takes time. It's like, like it's, it's like working out. You have to put in the effort to go to the gym, build those muscles to get better at it. The same thing with working in, in my opinion, that's kind of what I call it, working in to figure yourself out so that you can better navigate these triggers moving forward. And you're not always going to be perfect at it, but at least you're aware of what you're doing. And as you become more aware of it, I think more people will be able to be more in control of their lives. But I think a lot of people are out there just unaware of why they do what they do and they can't seem to figure it out until they, they really um, build that self-awareness. And that's kind of what I've learned over the years of doing this. And that's kind of how I help people, which is totally different than what you'll find in the fitness industry, because it's like, Hey, do this diet, do this workout, take these supplements and that should fix you. Right. But you know, we're, we have a huge obesity epidemic still. You know, it's interesting. Something that we talk about at eat right nutrition with our clients is uh, yeah. 
that you can't separate your life from your fitness and vice versa because it's all interconnected. Right. And if you're lacking in an area of, let's say it's your finances, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your kids, uh, your relationship with yourself or, you know, just different areas of your life. If you're lacking in those areas, it's like, how are you going to get your fitness together? And how are you going to, how are you going to be internally healthy? If mentally you have all these other areas that you need to focus on. Yeah, that's so true. And I think you guys are doing the same thing, helping people build that level of self-awareness and seeing how connected their uh, their personal life is with, on the mental, emotional, even spiritual side and how that affects their uh, physical health and their ability to do the physical things like working out consistently and showing up at the gym and and eating the the healthy food instead of eating the, the unhealthy food, right? Like those kinds of choices, it, it it's dependent on how they how the, the mental, emotional, spiritual stuff uh, happens. And when that stuff gets frustrating or, you know, it's difficult, it affects their ability to choose the broccoli over the ice cream, right? Those yeah. kinds of things are very interconnected. So I think you guys are pretty much doing the same thing, helping people build that uh, self-awareness to connect the dots. Like, oh, when I'm struggling with my finances or my relationships, it affects my motivation to work out or affects my motivation to eat healthy because, yeah, let's be honest. We self-sabotage sometimes. <laughs> we're emotional creatures. We eat our emotions. When we're sad, we're happy, we're lonely, we're angry, we'll reach for food, which is, in my opinion, is the most accessible drug, right? Not everyone's going to go out there and do cocaine or heroin uh, when they're feeling you know, bad, but it's easier to just go into the freezer and grab a pint of ice cream, right? Yeah, and you the same effect almost. Well, yeah. the other piece too is like you can practice abstinence from drugs. You can't practice abstinence from food as a as a you have to eat. Yeah, yeah, you have to eat, and it's everywhere. And it's at the grocery store. It's on the apps. It's on <laughs> social media. Like you see it all the time. Like you know. So that's a very good point. Do you practice with some of your clients? You know, I guess the the act of focusing on bettering other areas of your life in order to be successful with your uh, physical being. Yep. A hundred percent. So that's kind of why I have these protocols of non-physical aspects to their transformation. Um, Like I said, uh, meditation, journaling, gratitude list, positive affirmations. It has nothing to do with weight loss, right? It has zero percent to do, like you're not going to lose any weight from meditating. But these kinds of things, what I found is it helps them, helps translate to their ability to do uncomfortable things on the physical side. So things like meditation, uh, it's very uncomfortable for a lot of people, especially in this, you know, on the Western side of the world where we didn't grow up meditating. And so I think a lot of people struggle with being uncomfortable. But the key, as we all know, the key to transformation, if, especially physical transformation, is getting comfortable with, be, with doing uncomfortable things. Mm-hmm. And so if you could train your brain, rewire your brain to get comfortable in those uncomfortable moments, like, like a meditation, or also have people take a cold shower, which sucks. But basically what that does is it trains their brain to do something that's uncomfortable for a certain period of time and the, and then develop some positive self-talk during that uncomfortable practice mm-hmm. and say, hey, this is uncomfortable, but I know this is good for me and I can do hard things. And if I can do this uncomfortable thing and learn to be comfortable while I'm doing it, then the next time that I'm at the gym and the workout's getting uncomfortable, I can talk to myself the same way, like, hey this is getting uncomfortable. Normally I would quit here, but I got this, I can do this. And you uh, rewire your brain to talk to yourself in that you can be comfortable 
in a very uncomfortable situation. And so that's why I have them do these other uncomfortable things in these non-physical areas. In my opinion, it translates with their ability to do uncomfortable things in these physical areas that they know that they're supposed to do, but it's just a rewiring of their brain. And we live in this society that is built for comfort. I mean, we have everything at our disposal from air conditioning to heating to like, if you have a headache, you can take a pill. If you have a stomachache, you can take a pill. Uh, You got soft beds, you got warm showers, you got, you know, food at your fingertips. Like what, like any kind of discomfort you have, we have a cure for. And so to get uncomfortable, you kind of have to go out of your way. You have to like try really hard to get uncomfortable in this life. And now we're, we're trying to fight against evolution in a sense where it's like, hey, we're getting too comfortable now. Like we're getting to the point where no one wants to do anything uncomfortable, whether it's mental, and emotional or physical. And because of that, it's kind of killing us in a way. There's a good book that I read recently that I have my clients read called The Comfort Crisis and uh, by Michael Easter. Really, really good book that dives into the science of just how how this comfort crisis we have is killing a lot of us because we as humans weren't designed to live this life of comfort like we yeah we can but it's killing a lot of us and making us more miserable than we think it is and so you know us like you guys and me like we're trying to get people out of their comfort zone because that's where the growth happens right that's Mm -hmm. where they're going to grow but it's it's hard because we're like ah you mean i have to do that i have to do hard work (laughs) like i have to do something uncomfortable (laughs) to get what i want like isn't there a pill or technology that we can do just to get the benefits or the results from without without doing the work. And that's kind of, it's like that movie on Wally, you know, we're headed in that direction, but you know, it's getting so comfortable (laughs) where we don't have to move a muscle anymore. So listen, I had, I was watching TV the other night and I was on the phone with, I had got on the phone with Daron and there was a commercial for a sneaker. It was a sneaker commercial. And the commercial was all about these slide on sneakers that you don't have to bend down to put on. And I was called to Ron and I was like, this is what I'm talking about. You don't even have to bend down to put your sneakers on anymore because everything has got to be so easy and no one's going to, the commercial was like someone walking out with stuff in their hands and they didn't want to yeah. put the stuff down to put their sneakers on. And I mean, I know it's not silly, but I really stopped dead in my yeah. tracks and I was like, okay, well, I'm just trying to get people to move and they don't even have to put their sneakers on anymore. So, well, but I think- the whole I mean, like the whole Drew, coming too, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Drew said, though, which. too, like you, you can't, you physically, a lot of people physically can't bend over. Well, that's why I was. On. That's what it popped into my head when you said that a minute ago. But it's also the speed in which things people want to get things done. I think that's another piece that I found pretty um, powerful when you were talking about gaining the weight. Like it took you six months to gain weight, which is a that's a a lot of weight in a short period of time. Yeah, but. How long did it take you to get that off? Um, six months of losing weight. So that's kind of the way I planned it was yeah. six months, six months of losing. So a whole year to do the whole thing. Yeah. Wow. So now in, how long was it be from the 1.0, as you say, to I'm going to assume it's 2.0 for the second time that you did yeah. it? <laughs> um, I did it in 2020. So I, as a, when I turned 40. Okay. So, yeah. So I wanted to do it again in 2020. I felt called to do it a second time. You know, the world was in turmoil. Mm. We were super divided with everything that was going on from uh, the rights that we had in our nation to um, the pandemic. And it just, you know, social media just fuels that fire where there's just so much hate, so much division. And we're so quick to judge and label and put, you know, paint 
paint people in a box of like, oh, you're this type of person, I'm going to attack you. Mm -hmm. And so basically it caused this huge division, in my opinion. I'm like, hey, if we need empathy, now's the time more than ever that we need empathy. And so I felt called to do it again. Plus I was turning 40. I'm like, you know what? You know, back in 2011, social media wasn't really what it is today. It was just coming and becoming mainstream. There was no live streams. There was no stories. People couldn't really see what was happening as it happened. Most people heard about it after the fact, kind of like you guys. You guys watched my TV show just now, but it happened years ago. No one really saw me do it as I was doing it. They got to see it after the fact. And so this gave me an opportunity to do it again. And then plus being 40 years old, a lot of people, you know, in their 40s and 50s are like, it's so much harder. And I get it. It is harder as you get older, your metabolism slows down, your hormones change. And so I want to give that age demographic some hope, like, hey, I'm turning 40. Um, I plan on doing this experiment again, and I'll be live streaming it, posting stories every single day, um, capturing as much of the, the journey as I could. And people got to see it as it happened. And I felt like doing it a second time really could drive home this, the importance of like, hey, we need more empathy now more than ever. And that's kind of what this journey is about, is having empathy for those that struggle. Because I'll be honest with you, a lot of people in the fitness industry think it's easy. Like, just do it. We'll probably your way through it. Stop eating the junk food. Like, it's so easy for someone that's never struggled with their weight to tell people that do struggle, be like, yeah, just put it down. Like, just don't eat the junk food. Like, well, it's not that hard, right? What I'm trying to say is like, hey, I'm, I come from that camp of always being fit and always in shape. I'm telling you guys that having had this experience where I don't know exactly what it's like because I didn't grow up overweight. Um, I wasn't bullied or mean things weren't said to me because of my weight. So I don't, I don't even understand exactly how hard it is. I got a glimpse of kind of a small window of how hard it is for people. And I'm telling you guys, we have it all wrong in our approach. And like I said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's what really flipped the the switch for me where I'm like, hey, I'm all in on empathy. I'm all in trying to understand people because I feel like if people feel understood and they feel safe, they're more willing to listen. They're more willing to want to change themselves they just need to be given a chance. But if you look at someone that you're like, oh, you're 300 pounds, I'm going to label you this way. I'm going to paint a picture of you this way because I'm only seeing you on this chapter of life that you're in now. I have no idea what you've been through. You could have lost 100 pounds and I have no idea. I'm still judging you for being overweight, but I don't see the effort or the journey that you've been on because I have no empathy or I'm not even trying to understand you. And I love Brene Brown's work. She talks a lot about how it's hard to hate people up close Meaning if you really hear someone's story and you sit down and listen to them, they're really hard to hate up close, right? It's easy to yeah. hate someone on social media based off a post that they post and you have no idea who they are. You just see one picture of them. And you're like, okay, I'm going to label you as this, or you see a video and you're like, okay, you're this type of person. That's the problem with our society is no one's willing to do the work to really understand people. And there's another good book by Oprah called uh, what happened to you. And in that book, she kind of dives into the science behind, you know, instead of telling people like, hey, what's wrong with you? Like, why don't you why don't you act this way? Let's get curious about people, about why they are the way they are so that they feel more understood. And when people feel more understood, they're more willing to open up and be vulnerable and uh, want to change for the better. But if they're told, hey, lose weight um, because you're overweight and you're disgusting and you're lazy and all these things that society says, that's not going to be motivating for anyone. Like that's not going to motivate anyone to want to change. It's just going to shame them into hating who they are even more. And so for me, that's kind of my approach and what I've learned over the years. And so, yeah, doing it a second time in 2020, uh, I'll be totally honest with you guys. I kind of went into it a little bit cocky. Like, I got this. I've done this before. Like, it's not that hard. (laughs) 
I, I got truly humbled again the second time and it was way harder than I thought it was going to be, which, um, but I learned a lot of lessons from it, uh, doing it a second time. Anything different that you learned the second time versus the first time? Yes. So this time around different, uh, you know, place in life. The first time around I was married, had two little kids. Um, they were very young at the time. And then this time around I had been divorced for about five years or six years at the time. And uh, my daughters were older. I think they were nine and 11 at this time. And uh, I was in a relationship, had a girlfriend. And so going into it, you know, I was thinking, oh, I, I got this. I know how to do this. And uh, about three months in, I broke up my girlfriend, uh, just kind of totally separate from the journey. And I had nothing to do with the journey, just totally separate from that. But just kind of like a, a kind of blindsided with this huge life change. And then here I was in the middle of my weight gain journey. And before I was eating the food to gain the weight. And now I was eating the food to numb the pain mm -hmm. of the breakup where I felt sad. I felt lonely. I felt depressed. And there is something very powerful when you're in that state of mind that like a pint of ice cream or a glass of wine really does take away the pain temporarily. And I see why people get stuck in that mindset if they have a tragedy or some kind of heartbreak that happens to them, it is really um, powerful to reach for a substance like, you know, ice cream or, or food of any type that makes you feel better temporarily because it sucks to be in that emotional pain. Like yeah. it sucks to be in that pain. And so it's easier just to take the drug and be like, well, this is going to make me feel better. And so I knew what I was doing, but it's interesting how, even though I knew what I was doing, it brought this temporarily relief from the pain. And so now I feel like I understand emotional eating on a whole nother level because I actually lived it instead of, you know, just telling people like, Oh, this is what happens. I now got to experience what it feels like to be sad, lonely and depressed and cry eating a pint of ice cream <laughs> and how that, yeah, it temporarily makes you feel better. And I get why people do it. Like salmon and broccoli probably wouldn't have done the same thing chemically for me at that time. And um, yeah, it was really, really eye opening the second time around. And uh, yeah, so I have a lot more, even more empathy now uh, from that second experience. And I'm glad that that part's over. But um, this time around, I gained 62 pounds in four months. And then I lost the 60 pounds in the next four months. So this one was eight months uh, total, the whole journey. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned earlier, and I, I kind of, uh, you know, forgot it. And then I want to go back to it. The your testosterone yeah. levels dropped. Yes. When you gain the weight. I don't know if you did lab work this time around. And did, yeah, you find, did. did you find the same thing with your test levels? Same thing. <laughs> yeah, same so, thing. You know, it's interesting because we as a world, I guess, have declining birth rates. Yep. And we are like, well, why are there declining birth rates? And then we look at we have a higher incidence of infertility. And then it's like, well, why do we have a higher incidence of infertility? Well, uh, it's, it's, it's both on the male and the female side. And men were finding earlier and earlier, they have lower testosterone levels, right? Like men in their thirties with low test levels. And yeah. we've got all these researchers trying to figure out like, well, what's the problem? Why is that? And uh, to me, it's plain and clear. It's like, well, America is getting fatter and the world is getting fatter, right? As other nations, they adopt the Western diet and they become fatter. Then they have lower testosterone levels. Their hormones get all out of whack. And then they have lower fertility and therefore we have lower birth rates, right? To me, it's like, it's not even like, why are we, well, 
it's kind of one of those obvious things where I'm like, well, why are we trying to figure this out in research? We kind of know where this is coming from. Yeah, it is interesting that that's kind of the what's happening. And I think you, me, everyone in the fitness industry sees that. The media doesn't seem to jump on that or, or make a big deal about it. And you, you kind of just connect the dots. And I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, but I mean, there's some things that are so plain and clear where you're like, okay, it's pretty obvious. Like, for example, during the pandemic, no one was talking about how a healthy diet and exercise and uh, a proper vitamin supplementation could help boost your immune system and actually help fight, you know, all kinds of viruses. But no one is talking about using that as a protocol. It was like, no, just wear a mask. And, you know, I'm not anti-mask or pro-mask. I'm not saying any of that. But what I'm saying is like, hey, I think it was a wake up call. Like, hey, let's 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 take charge of our own health. Like, let's if you want to be healthier, here's the things we know we should be doing. Right. We should be eating certain types of foods. We should be exercising every single day. We should be managing our stress and sleeping and, you know, maybe some proper supplementation. You don't need all the supplements that are out there and like, you know, uh, that you see like on, you know, in, in the, the bro science world, but like, you know, some basic things and that kind of stuff can make a huge difference. And yeah, um, it, it, I think it's pretty, pretty plain and clear why that's happening. Um, you know, men's testosterone levels. And I think, you know, hopefully people will wake up to the reality of it and instead of just you know, pumping yourself full of drugs to change that. It's like, what if we just prevented it from happening by taking care of our health? But that's the hard part is like mandating, <laughs> you know, exercise and a healthy diet for people, uh, people, you know, we want our freedom. And that's the hard part too. It's like, maybe we force people to eat healthy and exercise. I don't think that's the right thing, but you know, I, I, I see what you're trying to say of, uh, you know, it's pretty obvious why there's so many health problems in the world and you see these other developing countries that are adopting American lifestyle, like China is becoming obese at scary rates because of how Americanized the society is becoming. And uh, that's the downside to this monster that we've created here in America. Like, okay, this capitalism, which is amazing, the best country in the world, as far as that goes, there's also a dark side to it of like, okay, now we're all about instant gratification, working longer hours, taking more stimulants, taking sleep pills to sleep, taking Viagra to get hard and like, taking all these pills to fix these ailments that could be fixed if we just, you know, slow down, slow down. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's like, we're putting, uh, we're trying to solve things on the back end. And, you know, it's like you mentioned earlier that, you know, kind of doctors are not really, they're not really solving the root of the problem. Uh, just like trainers in your eyes, right They're They weren't really solving the root of the problem. We have to get to the root of the problem. Why are people eating a certain way? Why are they living a certain lifestyle? And yeah. once, once we can solve that, then, you know, we can take care of a lot of problems that, you know, on the back end, even uh, from a medical perspective, we're looking at it from, oh, well, okay, you have low T, let's just give you some testosterone. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So I wanted to ask you about your, you're doing, you do keto now, right? You're a big keto guy, I guess. Yeah, I, I do teach keto. Um, I cycle on and off of keto. This is the thing is like, yeah, I'm not um, 100% always on keto. Uh, I think people assume that and they still, they see me eating potatoes and they freak out like, oh my gosh, wait, you're eating carbs, <laughs> you know? So I'm a, yes, I do teach people about how to do keto a healthy way. Let me ask you, what made you gravitate towards keto? In 2015, I was listening to a podcast with Tim Ferriss and this guy named Dr. Dominic D'Agostino. And they were talking about the benefits of the ketogenic diet um, out of, of the context of more of a scientific approach instead of a, a health and weight loss approach. It was more so 
um, you know, dealing with things like traumatic brain injury and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and brain toxicity and all these diseases of the brain that have been studied, the ketogenic diet had been studied around and epilepsy and seizures, those kinds of things. And I had no idea the scientific uh, literature that was being, uh, the resource that was being done on the ketogenic diet outside of a weight loss strategy. And so it really intrigued me to give it a try. I'm like, oh, maybe there's something here. And then I, I did my own 60 day experiment with it. And the way my brain felt being in a ketogenic state was something I've never experienced before up until that point in time, where the mental clarity and the improvement in cognitive function was completely night and day from before, where my brain just felt so sharp and so clear and so focused. Uh, being in a state of ketosis, it was like, wow, I'm never hungry, right? Like in, in that I don't need, I don't feel the need to eat every two or three hours, right? I could go six, seven hours between meals. My brain is sharper. My digestion is better because I'm not having to eat from sunup to sundown like I used to. So I could eat one or two meals a day. And I felt like my brain was just on fire. And I love the way my, my mental clarity felt during that phase. And so I was like, okay, there's something here. There's something that I, I love about this. And so I uh, jumped on board, met Dom, Dr. Dominic Diagostino at some point through some connections, uh, went back on the Dr. Oz show talking about the benefits of the ketogenic diet, dove deep into the research, wrote my own book about the ketogenic diet. And that was in 2018, 2019. I wrote my book and yeah, I'm a huge proponent of it as a tool in your tool belt. Um, I don't, I'm not dogmatic about it. I don't think it's the only way or the best way. I think it's a tool that people should learn how to use it as a tool because with keto, it's not like an, any other diet because you're entering a different metabolic state where you're burning fat as fuel instead of carbs as fuel. And so your brain feels different when you're in a state of ketosis. And I think as humans, from a pure evolutionary standpoint, we wouldn't be around today if we didn't have this thing known as ketosis uh, in our systems where we could run off of dual fuels, both glucose and ketones. And most of us in, in you know this day and age, if you grew up in America, most likely you grew up with a lot of grains, a lot of carbohydrates as part of your diet. And you've never really experienced ketosis unless you purposely fasted or you've known about the ketogenic diet. So you've never really been in a state of ketosis. And so for me, it's like, okay, maybe it's worth looking into, doing some research, experimenting with, and, you know, it's been around actually since the 1920s, if you look into the, the history of it, helping children with epilepsy and seizures, and it's cured a lot of these kids from severe um, epilepsy. And so there is something to say about the ketogenic diet from a pure um, medical perspective of how they've used it in different treatments. There's a whole uh, Charlie Foundation uh, named after this boy, Charlie, who, you know, his life was miraculously saved after, you know, from a young age, was pumped full of drugs. Uh, to help him with his epilepsy and nothing helped except for the ketogenic diet. So um, there is, there's a lot of literature being done um, and research being done on the ketogenic diet and other applications other than weight loss. But as far as pure weight loss goes, I mean, I think you guys know there's a million ways to lose weight and <laughs> like there's yeah. a million diets out there and they all work if you create a caloric deficit, Yeah. but you know, there's more to health than just weight loss, right? Yes. You know, it's interesting though. One thing that is the reoccurring theme with everyone that's done keto, myself included, is that mental clarity piece. Is that yeah. e almost everybody reports that, man, like I just feel sharp. I feel really yeah. good. For me, the workouts were kind of, you know, yeah, man, they, they, su they suffered a little bit performance wise, like my strength, you know, went down a little bit. But um, 
it's yeah i mean listen the ketogenic diet dates back to hippocrates right there there, that was kind of the first you know the kids with epilepsy they fasted because they were having so many seizures back to back to back to back that they couldn't eat anything and then all of a sudden the seizures subsided and it's like okay well why well because they're in a ketogenic state and you know, we go, we go from there. We, I mean, we could do a whole episode on this, but, um, I want to talk a little bit about the show, the T so how did sure. this, how did the TV show transpire? Like you did fit to fat to fit and then a and E kind of picked up on it. Like, how did that work? Yeah. So in a nutshell, um, uh, the, I did the journey and then I had a production company reach out to me, uh, when they, they saw me on Jay Leno and they're like, hey, we love your concept. We want to do a TV show based around your journey. I'm like, okay. So we went and pitched it. And no one picked it up, to be totally honest with you. No one knows this. Or not too many people know the story. But we went and pitched it to all the big networks, ABC, NBC, CBS. Pitched them this idea to do a, a fit to fit TV show. And no one picked it up. Fast forward a few years later, the production company reaches back out and says, hey, we want to repitch this. There's new executives at these networks. We're going to repitch this. Do you want to do it? I'm like, yeah. So we repitched it like a week later, A&E calls, says, hey, we want to buy the rights to this show. So that's where season one came from. Um, and uh, yeah, it was based off my journey. It was based off my book. And I was able to be, um, I don't know what the right word is, like a co-producer or co-creator with the production company in the creation of the show. Yeah. Let's go. How, how did they come up with the concept of the client doing it with the trainer? I found that to be probably the most empowering or interesting part of watching yeah. the whole interaction between the client and trainer. Yeah, because they wanted obviously TV. It's TV. They want more drama. So right. <laughs> yeah, throwing in the client um, aspect it just made it more powerful, more impactful. Yeah. Because they wanted to really show what it does for the client when the trainer gains the weight. Because you, you see the trainer become more empathetic, and if they didn't have the client aspect of it, you wouldn't be able to see that part of it. You would just mm -hmm. see the journey of the trainer gaining weight and losing weight, what they went through. But then day you want to see how this, how this translates into what they do as a profession of as a trainer, does it affect them as a trainer? And I would say nine out of the 10 trainers, yeah. they had a severe impact. And even fast forward to today, I just had a couple of them back on my podcast, mm -hmm. uh, kind of like, where are they now episode? And you see how even till this day, it, how impactful that experience was for them. Um, some of them have moved on from the fitness industry, but they still remember that as a very powerful experience to get out of their comfort zone, see see um, life through a new lens and uh, to better understand and empathize with with uh, those that struggle with being overweight. And so, yeah, I'm in touch with all of them and um, it's still very impactful for for a lot of them. Yeah, I've watched the whole first series back to back to back to back because I get so drawn into the whole psychology part of everything. So I was like, oh, my God, this is so cool. I think the the the, the part that really stood out to me was the the judgment. I don't know if that's the right word, but the judgment on the trainers to the clients before they actually like, well, they met like the first time or what their idea of what this client had been going through in life they're fat, they're lazy, like a lot of the traditional judgments on someone that does not lose the weight. And then on the other flip side, which I thought was really interesting to hear was, you know, this trainer guy that's going to come just beat the shit out of me, not care how I feel, not care that I'm in pain or that I, that this is going to be hard. And so that, that was really interesting to hear the judgment on each side. And then when they meet initially and the trainer gains the weight and they see each other again for the first time, how all that yeah. just melts away that I thought was, 
I mean, I'm a sap anyway for that stuff. So I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, look at this. So cool. And then to watch them go through it together, it was really cool. And I do think the judgment piece was really interesting because I work in a gym still and I hear uh-huh. that all the time. And this is 2022. And I hear trainers speak just the way you're talking. Like, why can't they just do it? How come they just don't understand? And oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I wish there was a season three or I wish there was a little bit more attention um, on during season two, because season two, we changed the format to where the client or the trainer had to train someone that was a family member or friend, and that made it a little bit more personal. So the concept that that was brilliant and an awesome idea, but unfortunately the TV gods, whoever decides what TV (laughs) shows to pull decided to pull it and you know, unfortunately, it's out of my control because people are like, oh, we're, we're, when's season three coming out? I'm like, I, you guys, it's, it got discontinued after two seasons. We're even like, I think 85 or 90% of shows after one season get canceled. So mm-hmm. I felt pretty fortunate to even have a season two. And uh, yeah, I think if, if there was um, an opportunity to do a season three, I would definitely love for, for that. To I be would love for them to add a, like therapy or more psychology help with both sides because it was really hard to watch both sides the trainer and the client struggle emotionally like the trainers were eye-opening some of those stories were pretty incredible to see these trainers kind of when you talked about identifying with their body fly off the handle and kind of lose themselves and the fact that that was no longer who they are or what they were who they were showing up for you know especially some of these trainers are hardcore trainers. I mean, they were like you fit, fit, yeah. fit, fit. I wouldn't say fit to fat. I would say fit, 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 <laughs> fat. You know yeah. what I mean? So it was, totally. it was really powerful. I thought it was fantastic. And I mean, Thank obviously you. I'm watching it years later, but it was <laughs> no, good. It was great. Thank you. Do you think that the fitness industry is going in that direction that you would like to see it go into? Or do you think there's still a lot of work to be done? That's a good question. I do, you know, I've been in the fitness industry for you know, 13 years now. Um, I do see it slowly shifting. It's just like the, the, the healthcare industry, you know, I see it slowly shifting, but it takes time because you have to deal with people's egos of, you know, admitting that maybe certain things are wrong or certain things really aren't working. And the hard part is that there's still, you know, different things that appeal to different people, right? Like David Goggins is, super powerful and it has a huge following for a reason, right? There's people that gravitate to that kind of mentality for sure. Mm -hmm. I think to make lasting change, it's hard to beat yourself up more and more and more and discipline yourself more and more and more to a place of self-acceptance. And that's kind of where I think people are still eventually in the long run, I think coming back to this place of like, there's still something wrong, even if they get the body, even if they get fit, even if they get healthy, um, a lot of people expect that to provide them with a source of happiness that just doesn't last very long. Like you yes. get lean and shredded. I know a lot of people that do physique shows and they're still miserable. They still hate themselves. They still don't think they look good enough. And so nothing will ever be enough for that mentality. And so I do see this whole, you know, wellness space kind of creeping in and growing a little bit more and more. And, you know, what I'm trying to preach is starting to catch on. I think, even though I've been preaching this for years, you know, it, I think it's going to take a while for people to gravitate towards this, this place of self-love, which is very uncomfortable for people to talk about or deal with, especially men. Like we 
right? We're taught to like, just be men. Like we just suck it out. We do the hard things, but there's a lot of broken men out there who um, still don't feel good enough. And they, they still feel ashamed and they um, still have to deal with, um, you know, learning how to be vulnerable, which is, doesn't feel safe. doesn't feel comfortable. And so I think men giving other men permission to be vulnerable is the key to transforming a lot of people out there, in my opinion. Um, so I, I, I have hope that it will eventually shift and change because you also have people like, I think Joe Rogan's a perfect example of like your man's man, but he's out there talking about meditation. He's out there talking about, you know, psychedelics. He talked about aliens too, but like what I'm saying <laughs> is you have, you have people out there talking about bettering, bettering yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And it's cool to do that. Like it's cool to meditate. It's cool to, um, um, explore and experiment and, um, get out of your comfort zone. Um, it doesn't always have to look a certain way. And so I think, you know, there's people out there that are like at the forefront kind of leading this change, if you will, where I do have hope that maybe this is the direction we're headed in and the fitness industry instead of shaming people for the way they look, we accept people for the way they, they look, but also give them the, the hope and the tools to say, okay, if you do want to improve your life, here's a healthy way of going about it. Like um, I just recently launched this conscious fit, a 30 day conscious fitness challenge is what I'm calling it. And it kind of encompasses all of this stuff that I'm talking about where it's the physical stuff we know we're supposed to do, but learning how to do it from a place of self-love um, instead of self-hate and beating yourself up. And it's all these uh, different tools and techniques that I'm teaching people. And I think there's something to that where people are starting to gravitate towards this type of approach. Um, Cause it doesn't feel as intimidating as like a 75 hard, you know, David Goggins style, which resonates with a certain part of the population, but the other part of the population is like, yeah, I don't want to have anything to do with the fitness industry. It's toxic. It's, you know, it's, it's not for me, but I think everyone needs some type of fitness. It doesn't have to be bodybuilding. Right. Um, right. I think there's a way to, to uh, um, help the masses uh, with a different approach. And so, yeah, I, I'm hopeful that it will change. Good stuff. Uh, I mean, listen, the inner work needs to be done. Amen. Like you're kind of alluding to, regardless of what you're doing on the outside and your physical being, the inner work, you're still going to have to do that work regardless. Yep. Amen. So I just want to leave our audience with where to find you everywhere that you are. So, you know, if anybody wants to follow you, reach out, you know, whatever it be, uh, where do we find you? Yeah, it's super simple. Fit number two, fat number two, fit.com. And then just at fit to fat to fit. Same thing with the number two in between uh, on all the social media handles. And you can find all my stuff there. So awesome, Drew. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you guys for letting me share my message. Awesome. Thanks. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week.